previously on Mafia. It's 1994 in South Boston. James Whitey Bulger was coasting through life after his prison release, rising through the ranks of organized crime. As the leader of the Winterhill Gang and a secret FBI informant, Bulger had been operating with little to no intervention from the law. But all of that was about to come crashing down. The law had finally caught up with him. And his FBI handler was John Connolly. He is actually still in jail. He was a corrupt handler. And he was the one that notified Kevin, who notified Jimmy, and Jimmy went on the run. In one last act of loyalty, Connolly got word to Bulger's closest associate, Kevin Weeks, that an indictment was coming for Bulger. Whitey got out of Dodge and went on the run, as his colleagues were all taken in for their crimes. But this would turn into a 16-year-long pursuit, and he was not going down without a fight. This is Mafia. Long before Whitey Bulger became involved with the FBI, the organization was trying to figure out how to take down organized crime, but they first needed proof that it was even a real thing. Jeff Schumacher is the vice president of exhibits and programs for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. The history of the FBI's focus on organized crime really starts in 1957. The FBI was, was really embarrassed by revelations that a mafia summit had been held in Appalachia, New York. And before that, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, had been saying, well, this mafia, it's not a big deal. It's kind of a myth. It's not, it's not going to be our focus. We have other things to worry about. But when this Appalachian summit was busted by a state trooper in New York, and it was revealed that there were like 60 mafia bosses from the Northeast and all over the country who had assembled at this rural a state to have a meeting, the FBI was chagrined, and Hoover decided that he was going to focus on the mafia in a big way. Thanks to Hoover's decision, Italian crime families were now the target, and everyone else was put on the back burner. This meant Bulger and his associates were essentially free to do as they pleased. When I say the mafia, they were really focused on the Italian-American organized crime that was going on around the country. So this became the obsession of the FBI, even in Boston. Boston was one of those places that had, still had many Irish organized crime groups. You know, obviously Whitey Bulger at the head by the 70s, but they weren't, the FBI generally was not interested in Whitey Bulger that way. They were interested in the Italians. They wanted to take down the mafia. That was a far sexier thing for them to be able to, to do. So what that meant was the Irish mobsters were pretty much ignored or they were used for the, by the FBI to get the Italians. That's what the final goal was. But this obsession with taking down one specific group of people would turn out to be a waste of time, as Bulger would often lie and get away with it, due to the agency looking the other way. Whitey would be calling the shots, not the FBI. He considered himself like a liaison as opposed to being an informant. And uh, that's how it, it went. Uh, Whitey often uh, would lie in his reports to the FBI he would certainly withhold all kinds of information. Just a month after he agreed with John Connolly to become an informant, he killed two people <laughs> and claimed that others had done the killings. And for his part, very sadly, you know, Connolly looked the other way 
uh, when Whitey and Steve Fleming, who also was an informant, were committing all kinds of horrible crimes. They were killing people, they were extorting people, all the things that they were doing, and the FBI would do nothing because what it was focused on was the taking down the mafia. But everything was about to change when local police finally caught on to Bulger's dealings, rightfully leaving the corrupted FBI out of the loop on their work. Why did Whitey Bulger go into hiding? It started with the fact that even though the FBI was protecting Whitey, other investigative agencies, law enforcement agencies in Massachusetts were not so willing to protect him. And one of those individuals who really decided to focus on, on Bulger and Steve Fleming was a man named Tom Foley. And Tom Foley was in charge of organized crime for the Massachusetts State Police. And he, would, for a very long time, had been suspicious of Whitey and Fleming's connection with the FBI. What he wants to do is he wants to take Whitey and Fleming down. So he starts by going after the bookies, the bookies who work for Whitey, which he wants to try to get them to talk. And he targeted this bookie named Chico Franz. And Chico Franz, when he was facing indictment, he decided to cooperate. Armed with incriminating information on Bulger, Flemmy, and others, Officer Foley now had what he needed. This information quickly finds its way to the FBI, and more specifically, right to John Connolly's desk. Due to conflicting reports, some say that Kevin Weeks, one of Bulger's closest associates, is the one to inform Bulger and company about the upcoming indictments. Some say it was Connolly himself. So in the fall of 1994, with indictments coming down against Whitey and Flemmy, John Connolly finds out about this. He actually tells Whitey and Flemmy they need to get out of town now or they're going to get busted. And so he gives them a head start. Whitey uh, leaves town right away. Flemmy doesn't, interestingly, but Whitey leaves town and he takes with him one of his longtime girlfriends, Teresa Stanley. And they go to New York for Christmas Eve and they, they go to New Orleans for New Year's Eve. Then they go to Clearwater, Florida for a while. And in the meantime, Steve Flemmy, for whatever reason, he feels like he's protected and he's not going to get arrested. Phyllis Karras is a writer and retired journalism professor and the author of Kevin Weeks's biography. She has personally worked with Weeks to get the full story from him. Karras talks about the last meeting between Weeks and Bulger before the indictments came down on all of them. He said to Kevin, when they come for you, give me up. And it was kind of a strange statement. And Kevin didn't pay that much attention, but he had this strange feeling something was really off. And sure enough, about three months later, it was announced that Jim Bulger was a FBI informant. And to Kevin, he was so astounded when he heard it on the news. Stevie Fleming had also been a very strong you know, partner with Jimmy. And when he was also told by John Connolly that the indictments were coming for both Flemmy and for Bulger. Flemmy refused to leave. He said, nah, this one will blow over. I'm staying. On January 5th, 1995, Flemmy is caught in Boston. And he had ignored all the warnings to uh, get out of town. And Whitey, you know, had not been indicted yet at that point. He was in Connecticut heading back to Boston when he heard news on the radio that Flemmy had been arrested. Now known to the police, without the FBI's safety net, and knowing an indictment was coming, Bulger was on the run. And this time, he had no one to hide behind. 
After years of being free to do as he pleased without repercussion, Whitey Bulger was on the run. Local law enforcement had had enough and decided to put an end to Bulger's illegal dealings. Interestingly, his case did not initially blow up to the proportions it would reach towards the end of the 16-year pursuit. At first, local and state police were very low-key when it came to Bulger, as they were embarrassed it had gotten to this point without them being able to catch him. Vice President of Exhibits and Programs for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, Jeff Schumacher, explains. So in terms of the, the manhunt for, for Whitey Bulger, what's interesting about it is the, is the dichotomy of, of how urgent it was, depending on who you were. The Boston office of the FBI, at least at first, was not particularly interested in catching Whitey. They had no enthusiasm for the chase. And this had to do with largely with how embarrassed they would be by the whole thing. But for the FBI generally, it was intense because Whitey was really a public embarrassment and they really wanted to clean this up by catching him and, and putting this whole thing to rest. But they just couldn't catch him. But their tune would soon change. The FBI did not offer a reward for his capture for two years. And then he was not even added to the most wanted list until 1999. So the intensity of this chase was, was muted at first. And it really got ramped up in 1999 because of a man named Mark Wolf. Mark Wolf was a, a federal judge who wanted to pin down exactly what the relationship was between the FBI and Whitey Bulger. And he did a, had a series of investigative hearings, and he released a 661-page document outlining the findings of those interviews. And it was extremely damaging to the FBI. But the drama was just beginning to unfold. The FBI now had reason to go after Bulger to save their reputation. And his own colleagues were beginning to turn on him. This really started the avalanche. Then you saw one of Whitey's accomplices, a man named John Martirano, he agreed to cooperate, and he told all about the murders that they had done. Then Kevin Weeks, who was a very close accomplice of, of Whitey's, he turned in as well, and he told about the graves of the murder victims. And then famously, there were a lot of media reports about digging up these, these shallow graves where people had been buried after they were killed. The evidence against Bulger was mounting. And then FBI agent John Conley, the guy who had worked with Whitey all those years, was indicted. And he was convicted of racketeering, obstruction of justice, lying, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. So all this, all this testimony led to a new indictment of Whitey in 2000, and he was accused of 19 murders. And then in 2003, Steve Flemmy pleads guilty to 10 murders, and agrees to testify for the government. Whitey bounced around, staying in Santa Monica, California for the majority of the chase, though he was known for his enjoyment of traveling the world, which would allegedly lead the FBI's manhunt to various countries, including Mexico, Britain, Thailand, and Canada. They really traveled down to Tijuana, where they would get prescription drugs, and occasionally they went to Las Vegas for fun, just to have a, you know, a, little, a little breather. But the traveling would soon come to an abrupt halt, once Bulger's spot on the FBI most wanted list moved up a place. After Osama bin Laden was killed in 2011, Whitey became number one on the most wanted list, and this made him very nervous. He felt like once he became number one, the search was going to intensify, 
and, and it did. Uh, right around that same time, the FBI finally relented and brought in the U.S. Marshals Service to help them um, with search for Whitey. And, you know, the FBI was flustered. They couldn't find Whitey, but it was the U.S. Marshals Service. That's their expertise. That's what they do is they find fugitives, right? But the FBI was so proud that they couldn't possibly, you know, have the U.S. Marshals uh, do this. And it wasn't long after that till all the pieces started to fall into place. They assigned a guy named Neil Sullivan to the case, and it didn't take long for Neil Sullivan and others to, uh, to figure this out. The breakthrough was a CNN story. The FBI had placed this series of ads looking for Kathy Greig, and this was the trick, right? I mean, Whitey was, was going to be hard to find because he stayed home a lot, and and he had aged a lot since the last pictures that they had. So he's easy to blend in. But Kathy Grigg was this really beautiful, tall, blonde woman. And it was like, and she was very outgoing. So she got to end up meeting a lot of people and stuff. It was an interesting stroke of luck. The following series of events happened. This woman in Iceland, believe it or not, was watching CNN. And she saw this story about the FBI's ad campaign looking for Kathy Grigg. And it turned out that this Icelandic woman had been living in California earlier and she had befriended Grigg. And uh, when she saw the report, she called the FBI and told them about Carol and Charlie Gasco in Santa Monica. The FBI now had the aliases of Bulger and Grigg and their location. Most importantly, neither knew they were about to be apprehended. So yeah, they finally know where Whitey Bulger is. In 2011, they decided to, you know, they're going to bring him in. And what they did was they, they contacted a man named Joshua Bond. And Joshua Bond was the property manager of the apartment complex where, where Whitey lived. And, and he was a young musician, and he, had, he happened to have befriended Whitey. So they knew each other. And he actually lived next door to Bulger. So the FBI contacts Bond. He confirmed exactly where Whitey lived in apartment 303. And then a Bond, he didn't really want to do it because suddenly he was scared to death, you know. But he reluctantly agreed to work with the FBI agents to lure Whitey out of the apartment. And uh, ultimately, Bulger was arrested uh, without incident outside the apartment complex. The over-decade-and-a-half-long pursuit had finally come to a close. All that was left was the trial. The trial for Whitey is held in 2012. It's a pretty interesting trial in that it is a lot of revelations about Whitey and about what he was doing. What was really interesting about it was Whitey didn't even really want to fight the charges of murder or of extortion or anything else that he was doing. All he wanted to do was prove that he wasn't an informant for the FBI. He was insistent this was the most important thing for him was that he wanted to show that that was a lie. Well, he failed miserably in that in that effort and ultimately didn't fight the, uh, the real charges very hard. The jury convicted Bulger of 31 counts, including 11 of the 19 murders he had been accused of. So he probably did all 19 murders, but he only had evidence to prove 11 of them, which is more than enough. And this was the ultimate end of Bulger's time on the run. The following year, in 2013, Belger was sentenced to two life terms in prison. He serves time in prison. He is uh, starting to have medical problems. He's an older man, but he's, and he's a big letter writer. There's a lot of letters out there in the world, that, including in our museum uh, collection, 
where Whitey is writing about his life and writing about different things that he's interested in. He was a real correspondent with a lot of different people. He moved around quite a bit within the federal prison system. For example, he was in Tucson, Arizona. He was in Coleman, Florida. He was in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. In 2018, for, for reasons that are still mysterious, Bulger is sent to the federal prison in Brewston Mills, West Virginia. And it's, it's a very strange uh, reason why he was sent there. It's just not clear. And then he's put into the general prison population when he's there. For someone as famous and, or as infamous as Whitey Bulger to be placed in the general population is very unusual. And ultimately on October 30th, 2018, he was murdered in that prison. I think we have a pretty good idea of who did it, or at least who has been accused of doing it. As is the case in organized crime, sharing information with law enforcement is a big no. And Whitey had come into contact with a fellow mobster who knew he was an informant. One of them was a former Boston area mob hitman who was serving a life term, Freddie Gias. We're not sure yet of all the details, but it's pretty clear that GS reportedly had a, uh, a particularly hatred for rats, for informants, uh, and uh, certainly Bulger uh, fit that mold. And ultimately, he was uh, his body was returned to Boston, and he was buried in St. Monica's Church in South Boston. So where he came from, he returned. Phyllis Karras, author of Kevin Weeks' biography, had this to say about Kathy Grieg, Bulger's longtime girlfriend. She never believed any of the stories about Jim Bulger being a, a murderer. She knew he did some bad things. She knew he was into the mob, but she never believed. She still doesn't to this day believe that he was really as bad as, as he honestly was. Some people have a fascination with gangsters and mobsters and somehow can look beyond the murders and the crimes they commit to focus on the charisma, the bravado of these individuals. There's something about the mob that fascinates people without sort of recognizing the, the, the much darker side of what they're looking at. Others, especially those who were victimized by Bulger, see him as this horrible murderous thug who deserved everything he got. There's plenty of people in Boston who were victimized by Whitey Bulger, who had family members who were killed, who you know were, were uh, robbed from, robbed by him, who were hurt by him in one way or another. And there is a whole nother faction, certainly, that sees him as a rat, as an informant, which is worse than being a killer in some factions of South Boston. In the end, Bulger will be remembered by some for his crimes and by others for his philanthropy. I think he, he I was that psychopath, sociopath. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I mean, I know he's not normal. Uh, was he normal before he had all those LSD treatments? I, I don't know that. He, he, crime was in his blood. I mean, 14 years old is rather big. I mean, this is not a normal thing, you know, for a person. And there were six kids in his family, six kids in Kevin's family. And Kevin was the only gangster in his, and Jimmy was the only gangster in, in, in his. So how did people raised by the same family and they turn out that way? I don't know. There had to be something really screwed up in, in him to have done so many murders. Had to be. There's a lot of different ways that people look at Whitey Bulger today. He is certainly a man of contradictions. And that's one of the things that I think you see with a lot of these, these criminals at this stature. He considered himself an American patriot 
while at the same time routinely using murder and threats to make his fortune. He had no trouble killing a person. I mean, he was just, you know, a cold-blooded killer, but he couldn't watch his sick dog be put down without turning his head and crying. You know, he professed to hate drugs, yet he profited handsomely from drug dealers, from extorting drug dealers. He valued loyalty among his peers at the same time he was providing intelligence to the FBI. A man of contradictions that are, you know, most of us could not carry in our brain at the same time. And somehow he was he was able to do that well into his 80s. You know, he, he never had that moment, uh, it appears, in prison where he realized that everything he had done was just horrible and wrong. And, and uh, you know, he, he was able to justify so much of it. This has been Mafia, an Audio Boom original series hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. This show is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, and Rachel Jacobs. Executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Special thanks to Phyllis Karras and Jeff Schumacher for providing expert insight for this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Next time on Mafia. During the 1920s, the Big Easy was home to some of the most notorious members of the New Orleans underworld, including Silvestro Silver Dollar Sam Carollo, a mafioso whose life is shrouded in legend and mystery. As a member of Charles Matrenga's Black Hand Gang, Sam Carollo quickly became a force to be reckoned with, eventually surpassing Matrenga as New Orleans' top dog. If Carollo ever resembled an Al Capone figure in New Orleans, it was during this time. The newspapers would call him the little czar of the underworld, a viperous bootlegger, and the worst of the Chicago-style gangsters. <laughs>